welcome to Take Line. I'm your host, Jason Concepcion. A great and substantive and interesting show this week. I'm talking first to Wall Street Journal NFL reporter Andrew Beaton to discuss the uh, Cleveland Browns' recent trade for Deshaun Watson, signing him to a five-year, $230 million, nearly fully guaranteed contract, despite the fact that Watson is currently facing civil lawsuits from 22 women who have accused him of sexual misconduct, sexual assault, a range of bad activities. Later, uh, producers Zuri Irvin and Ryan Wallerson and I will just kind of like unpack this entire sad story. After that, I'm talking to Katie Barnes of ESPN about the uh, reaction to NCAA swimmer, University of Pennsylvania student Leah Thomas, who be, just became the first known transgender athlete to win an NCAA Division I title after claiming the 500-meter freestyle event over the weekend. And then finally, I'll speak to Evan Holyfield, son of four-time heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield and one of the stars of Legacy in the Shadow of Greatness, uh, which premiered earlier this month on Discovery+. Plus. On March 11th, grand jury in Texas decided not to pursue charges in numerous sexual misconduct and sexual assault cases against now former Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson. Uh, Several days after that, the Cleveland Browns uh, traded for Watson and then announced that they would be signing him to what is essentially the richest guaranteed contract In NFL history, $230 million, meaning that should Watson be suspended due to, you know, the repercussions of any of the 22 ongoing civil cases that still remain against him, he will lose only $1 million of the massive $230 million uh, payday. The Browns released a statement saying, in part, uh, we spent a tremendous amount of time exploring and investigating the opportunity to trade for Deshaun. We should add here that they are not the only ones. You know, New Orleans, Atlanta, et cetera. A lot of other teams were exploring uh, trading for Deshaun. Part of why clearly the Browns landed Deshaun was they were willing to sign him to this massive guaranteed contract. Uh, we are acutely aware and empathetic to the highly personal sentiments expressed about this decision. Our team's comprehensive evaluation process was of utmost importance due to the sensitive nature of his situation and the complex factors involved. Yada, yada, yada. We also understand that there are still some legal proceedings that are ongoing. That is a reference to the 22 ongoing civil litigations against Deshaun. And we will respect due process. Okay. Joining me now to talk about this, because we've been talking about this in the pre-pro meeting that we had, is uh, my producers, the Take Line producers, uh, Zuri Irvin and Ryan Wallerson. It's interesting to me, this, because... There are two ways to see this. Either, right, Deshaun is not legally guilty, but did do the acts that he is accused of doing by, again, 22 uh, different women in these cases, and more so that didn't bring cases but have been interviewed by various outlets. Or he is like the victim of a massive extortion scheme by various predatory massage therapists, in which case a crime has occurred, and it is that uh, these women are are conspiring to defraud a very famous athlete from millions of dollars and hurt his his career in ways that would be actually like hard to measure, and in which case – it would be interesting to me that uh, Deshaun doesn't seem too like concerned about that. Like the thing that it makes it crazy to me is if in fact 22 women were involved in some sort of vast conspiracy, like if I was Deshaun Watson, I'd be like screaming from the mountaintop about different ways that I would be like going forward to clear my name, including investigators, including urging the FBI to get involved. I just wish sometimes that people would say, you know what? I think he did it, but I don't care because that's where I feel like we're at. I feel like a lot of people are like, I think he did it, but I don't care. It's it's worse to me that people are willing to believe that 22, which is an immense number, 22 different women are lying about this in ways that w- in which their stories all line up. And in doing so are like opening themselves up to ridicule, to societal pressures, to damage to their reputation, to fans of Deshaun Watson, like harassing them should their names come out. It just is – it doesn't make sense to me logically that you could come to that conclusion, but clearly many people are. 
Yeah, I think it's, um, we know that sexual assault survivors, we know that it's difficult for them to come forward in times like these. We know that they don't have a lot to gain. And also, I think the timeline of this might be a little important. I mean, we'd have to assume that they would know that Deshaun Watson was going to sign a $230 million contract to then take advantage of a year later down the line, which, again, seems unlikely. So I don't know. I, I think if you, take, if you take that into account, it's like the foresight it would have taken for some of these um, survivors to wait a year and then presumably take advantage of this contract, which, again, I'm not defending. That's what makes it so unbelievable for me as well, because if you think about the endeavor that they would have had to take on starting from a year ago and then coordinating their stories the way that they have within the investigation that's been conducted, that their stories are so similar. It's just like acting classes, like cooperation. And in which case, right, this is like an immense conspiracy, which is the thing that is like, okay, so if you believe that, like it's this and Rusty Harden, uh, uh, Deshaun's lawyer did say last year sometime that Deshaun uh, had been interviewed by the FBI regarding this case. Now, he is the only source for that. The FBI's involvement has not appeared in any other reporting in the New York Times, the Sports Illustrated, anywhere else. The only person that says the FBI is looking into uh, Deshaun being extorted is Rusty Harden, Deshaun's lawyer. Okay, so uh, who knows? But like, if you believe that, then why aren't uh, why aren't the FBI getting to the to the bottom of it? Clearly, like if uh, you know, we're not talking about like ISIS or Russian spies, right? If, if we're talking about like regular people who would presumably have been texting and emailing and contacting each other about like making this plan, couldn't be that hard to crack this case, right? And if it were the case, wouldn't this gigantic uh, sports media engine be? eager to investigate and to blow open a story of this nature, wouldn't Adam Schefter be like, man, I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to pursue the story that finally clears Deshaun Watson's name and shines a light on this network of predatory uh, women who are preying on uh, millionaire athletes. Wouldn't there be any, like an uncountable number of journalists and investigators ready to dive into this case to reveal that? And yet, where's that at? They'd be dueling each other to break that news, like literally dueling each other to the death, because it's very clear that somebody is guilty of a very serious crime here, whether it's Deshaun Watson and his just lifestyle and very problematic, disrespectful lifestyle or, you know, this conspiracy of intent to, to come together and defraud this famous NFL quarterback. And here's the other thing. Uh, when Deshaun was deposed last week. He took the fifth twice. What does that tell you? Pleaded his Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself in court. So what does that tell you? Do you guys ever think about, I mean, we're talking about not pointing the finger at the Cleveland Browns per se, because several teams are going to go after Deshaun Watson no matter what. But I think about the culture of uh, what it means to be a fan of the NFL and, and like how culpable are we as fans to create an apparatus that allows a guy like Deshaun to skate free. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I think about it all the time. Like, we're talking about the NFL right now. The last NFL postseason was probably the most entertaining in anybody's living memory, right? The, the league is a $10 billion league on the way to a $20 billion league. Like, we're all a part of this. And I think everybody who likes the sport, watches the sport, talks about the sport, should on some level interrogate the, their own relationship with it. Okay, so 22 women have accused Deshaun Watson of sexual misconduct including forced oral sex, exposing himself, and other types of unwanted touching. Deshaun then countered through his lawyer, Rusty Harden, that, oh, his, here's 18 other massage therapists mm. who say that Deshaun was absolutely a perfect gentleman during the massages. If you're an athlete, you're, you're a professional athlete, right? Body's the temple. Do you have like 40 different nutritionists or 40 different trainers? Like... Why does Deshaun Watson have 40-odd individual women mm. who he has contacted, many through Instagram, for the purposes of uh, massage therapy? Wouldn't you just have, like, two or three that are your trusted ones and that you just keep uh, cycling them uh, according to availability? Why 22 plus 18? Why that many? What does that tell you? <laughs> 
tells me that either something is wrong and he's looking for the right person or he likes the revolving door. <laughs> right. He has a muscle pull that is just is is devastating. And his body is like on the verge of breaking down. <laughs> so so he thinks he's going to find, you know, the, the finally the relief to this age old issue on Instagram right. and someone's DMs. <laughs> also, also doesn't finding 18 counter witnesses almost raise more questions. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't know how ready yeah. it should be to have a bunch of corroborating counter witnesses at, at the drop of a hat. I think it probably tells you that you were ready for some criminality coming your way, some justifiable criminality. On both levels, it shows that you were prepared for it. Also, it just shows us the sheer quantity of women you've engaged with on this level. The other thing that Rusty Harden and, you know, Deshaun Watson and some of his supporters said, oh, well, you know, it was uh, this was during, uh, you know, COVID times and it was tough to it's at times tough to schedule a massage therapist and yada, 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 which makes it even crazier because now it's like 40 women in a in the space of like a year. I mean, do the math on it. That's like, how many is that a month? It's like three point something, 3.65 a month. Again, I guess like the one uh, conclusion we can definitely come away with is that, uh, is that Deshaun Watson loves massage. <laughs> like why, uh, why does he need it this much? Um, all of which is to say, it's, it's just crazy to me that, um, the logistical hoops that people can jump through to say, oh, these are gold diggers. This is all false. This is not true. Um, it are really, really astounding when the kind of easiest explanation charges aside. And we could talk about how underreported sexual assault is, how underconvicted it is, the shame involved in coming forward and all the reasons that victims don't come forward and or that victims uh, maintain contact with a with a person who has victimized them for you know that is all stuff that happens and often like that evidence is then used against victims when they speak up but it just is the simple explanation is right there that he very likely did this and that the evidence the witness accounts of 22 different women tell us that and he's gonna get away with it He's going to get away with it. And then the other side of that is that the NFL, the league, the owners, and to a great degree, its fans simply don't care about this type of activity. I think we don't care. And I think we don't care because sports is supposed to be like, we think about it as an escape. Like how many times have we said it like during the pandemic? Oh, it's great to have the NBA back. Oh, it's so great to have uh, the, the NFL back. Oh, that was the, you know, like, it was, you know, the world was crazy. And I just got to turn that on and feel normal for a second. And I think that, the, you know, uh, that has always been the case. COVID or no is sports are an escape and people don't want to think about the other stuff that goes on with it, whether it's traumatic brain injury or sexual assault or racism or whatever. They don't want to think about it. They just want to see the ball go in the hoop or the ball go into the end zone and that's it. They don't want to think too much more about it. It's like what's the what's the counter to lose your great escape? Yeah. But be able to sleep better at night. No, people aren't making that choice. Last week, uh a grand jury in Texas decided not to indict Deshaun Watson now former uh, Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson on uh, charges of uh, sexual misconduct, sexual assault from 22 different massage therapists. A few days later, the Cleveland Browns acquired Watson and signed him to, you know, the richest fully guaranteed deal in NFL history. Joining us to unpack all the football angles to this is Wall Street Journal NFL reporter Andrew Beaton. Andrew, welcome back to Take Line. Thanks so much, Jason. Andrew, uh, so the Browns have given Watson a five-year, $230 million contract. It is the largest guaranteed contract in NFL history. I don't know if this is necessarily the way the NFL wanted to make history, but here we are. Um, what, what's your just knee-jerk reaction to this deal, to this signing, the culmination until the, uh, until the civil cases get underway of this part of the Deshaun Watson saga, I guess we'd call it? I think my reaction is, I think it's pretty telling when it's been a bizarre last year where he wasn't suspended, mm -hmm. he wasn't it hurt, but he just didn't play the whole year. He was basically on paid leave without being on paid leave. And there's all these 
pretty ugly, troubling, concerning, whatever you want to call them, allegations against them from 22 women in civil suits. And there wasn't really much hesitation around the league as a whole to try and trade for them. Right. We're criticizing the Browns, and we should. Uh, But, you know, there were, you know, New Orleans was involved, Atlanta was involved. There was a lot of teams that were trying to get Deshaun Watson. Right. Teams were lining up for him. And they were the team that convinced him to waive his no-trade clause there. They ponied up in terms of draft picks. They ponied up in terms of a massive contract. And, you know, they were just the teams that, quote-unquote, won out in this lottery. But there's a lot of teams that wanted to win. So the Browns put themselves in this position by offering the most and getting him to go there. Remember, he had say in where he could go because he had a no-trade clause and could say, all right, this is where I'm waiving it. Yeah, perversely, I think you could argue, and some have, that he had the most leverage ever, like, in history for any, like, NFL player. Yeah, I mean, he he had an extraordinary amount of leverage because it's the nature of football, right? Right. We know how valuable quarterbacks are. Quarterbacks like him who are this young and this talented, Yeah, it's hard to think of an example of one who a team willingly traded and has become available this early in his career. So on the pure football side, this was a rather unprecedented opportunity for a team to get a quarterback of his caliber. Of course. But we all know the reasons why this opportunity existed. One of them is because even right around when these accusations first started coming, he had already wanted out of Houston anyway. That was a weird situation in the sense that it was a little confusing at the time because he wanted out and then this happened. And then there were all sorts of really bizarre allegations and, and conspiracy theories regarding the Texans involvement in these, which was all of which is silly. Um, but it was kind of like a weird muddled beginning to all of this. It set off, it was just a completely strange year. And we live in this kind of sports world where we want to separate off the field stuff from on the field stuff. But this was a situation where it was pretty hard to separate the two yeah. because they want to trade him eventually. But on the other hand, teams were a little leery of wading into the market while mm-hmm. they wanted to see how everything's going to play out. But the Texans don't want to trade their most valuable asset on the field for pennies on the dollar. So it just kind of created the stalemate. And then all of a sudden, when you see the grand jury convene, they come out and say he's not going to be indicted. Everybody leaps into action. It's like, oh, you know, it might there might be 22 civil suits with women accusing him of really terrible behavior. But, you know, once the charges were dropped, that's when the race began. So you mentioned the 22 civil suits and the, the deposition and the, and the grand jury's decision to not press charges. Watson is being taken to court by 22 massage therapists. That's not everybody who has accused him of wrongdoing, but the wrongdoing ranges from what I guess would be indecent exposure to uh, sexual and unwanted touching to sexual assault. In a couple of cases, uh, Deshaun uh, gave a deposition. He pled the fifth twice, which draw your own conclusions there. I ask this not to like let the NFL off the hook, but you know, what is your sense of the understanding of how this, how this appears to people around the league? You know, uh, I think the, the league has done a lot of work in recent years to try and at least give lip service to understanding issues around violence against women, et cetera. What are the people connected to the league? What are their feelings now after this deal? I mean, I think there's a lot of queasiness going around, right? And it's not hard to understand why. And to be clear, you know, all these things still have to play out. Right. But the league at some point is going to have to make a decision on him. And they were sort of spared from that last year because of that whole bizarre situation where he didn't want to play for the Texans and the Texans were seemingly just okay paying him to not play for them. And so they're kind of spared that decision because they didn't actually ever have to choose, all right, as the National Football League, are we comfortable letting Deshaun Watson take the field while all this plays out? But at some point, they will have to make that decision. And they will have to decide if they're suspending him for how long they're suspending him. And, you know, this is a league where they've had to make those choices before. You know, Kareem Hunt is another guy that the Browns have signed after he was cut by the Chiefs. 
Um, I mean, if you want to connect dots, feel free. But uh, it, the, the point is the league has been faced with these decisions before and they had this kind of strange lucky happenstance that they didn't have to do it yet on Deshaun Watson, who was set up to be one of the faces of the league, college football star, charming. And now at some point, presumably maybe before next season, they're not going to be spared from having to make that call. So Rusty Harden, who is um, Watson's lawyer, uh, has uh, given voice to the kind of the often used uh, defense against things like this, which is some of these accusers are making this up for money as a kind of extortion uh, scheme. And he said, uh, Rusty Harden did, that you know the FBI uh, uh, interviewed Watson and may have interviewed a few of the women. Rusty Harden's the only person that's ever said that. I haven't found any uh, other corroboration that the FBI was involved in this. So whenever I hear things like, oh, here's these, uh, these women around for money. Uh, but then when I get to 22, I think, well, that's like a legitimate, if that's true, that's like legitimately a vast criminal conspiracy. Maybe, you know, not to say that all of them conspired, but maybe two or three or some here. If that were true, wouldn't Watson want the FBI to get involved? And do you have any indication that that is happening, that there is a, a case moving forward to break this, uh, uh, according to Watson, like, uh, you know, a criminal, vast criminal conspiracy of predatory people looking to extort a millionaire athlete? I mean, all I know is about what Rusty Harden has said about this publicly. I do not have any information about this, uh, this bust coming. Um, and as you said, 22 is a large number, right? Um, yes. That is one of the things that I think lurks in everybody's mind about this case, because we all very much understand that there is a due process. Everyone gets that. And Deshaun Watson should and will get yes. his uh, due process. Yes. But as you weigh the, the kind of so-called stink of making a trade like this before that due process plays out, that 22 number is something that's a little hard to get out of your head. To kind of build on that. Um, in addition to the 22 that have filed civil suits against Watson, there were 18 uh, massage therapists who testified that that they were uh, treated in a similar fashion to Watson, that some of them had discussed it, and the word was kind of out amongst the network of massage therapists that, hey, watch out for this. 18 of those did not decide to press charges. So you add that together, that's 40 women. In your experience covering pro athletes, you know, their body is their temple. It, it's worth millions of dollars to them. How often, how, how common is it for a professional athlete of the kind of like quality uh, and sought afterness of Deshaun Watson to have 40 plus different like health therapists? Like I, I can't think of any professional athlete that I've ever covered or known about that has had like 40 different dietitians or like 40 different trainers. Like, that seems a high number, no? It does seem like a high number. Many contacted, I would add, through Instagram. Yeah, I think if you were to ask um, Deshaun Watson's team about this, I'm not going to speak for them. Of course. But um, the, one of the points that they have laid out in the past is that a lot of this happened during the onset of COVID when everything was weird. Of course. Um, in that regard. Just couldn't book a massage at that time. It was so crazy. <laughs> That's what we're all thinking about in March <laughs> of 2020. Um, yeah. But it is true that... We see with athletes over and over. I mean, maybe Tom Brady and TB12 is the, you know, chief poster child of this. But most of the best football players, basketball players, any sort of Olympian, they're obsessive over what they put in their body, about how they treat it, how they train it. They might uh, believe in all sorts of witchcraft and snake oil, but their routine is their routine. And very often... It's they, they believe to the bone working with this one trainer, working this one physio. So it is another thing that stands out as, okay, maybe a little bit of a red flag here. So the NFL is a $10 billion league. We're heading towards $20 billion. Gambling we have seen at almost any price point is something for which the league will come down with the full force of its, of its powers. Um, violence against women, sexual assaults, things of that nature, uh, still up in the air about how uh, they will treat that with any kind of force or any kind of like uh, predictable uh, 
objectives. Do you think that this does anything to the way people view the league? Or is the NFL just too big of a juggernaut at this point? I think they're gonna, probably going to have to spend a lot of time answering questions from women's groups, from um, all sorts of ad- advocacy groups. And, you know, if you think back to the time of, say, after Ray Rice, the league had to do a lot of answering for that, um, and deservedly so. And I think depending on what happens here, that's very possible it's going to happen again. Because I think one of the things that has really raised an eyebrow about this entire situation isn't just that we know Deshaun Watson will step on an NFL field again, or even that a team traded uh, basically its entire future for him with all those draft picks. But they also gave him a raise, right? And so when you right. add all of these things <laughs> together, um, it paints a pretty uncomfortable picture about uh, about um, what NFL teams value. And because obviously his cases could go any sorts of ways, but they're undecided right now and there's a lot of accusations. And so they've sort of decided to plow through that. The Browns released a statement last week saying in part, our team's comprehensive evaluation process was of utmost importance due to the sensitive nature of his situation and the complex factors involved. And is there any kind of indication about what that process looked like, what it was beyond obviously kind of trying to quantify his impact on the field and what he might do to their salary cap once they sign him off to this massive contract? Was there any, is there any kind of indication about what the shape of that investigative process was? I mean, presumably they took the time to hop on Google and maybe flip through the 22 lawsuits. <laughs> but one of the things that uh, that the lawyer for the accusers had pointed out is the Browns didn't reach out to him. Um, and make mm. the, make of that what you will. I mean, I'm not sure, sure reaching out to him would have been that much more valuable, say, than you know reading the lawsuits and reading for yourself what these women have accused him of. But I think it all points to a picture of this was a football decision and you can try and paint it every which way, but this was a football decision. Um, and I guess we should ask uh, this following question then, uh, considering that, what do you, uh, what do you expect of the Browns next season with Deshaun Watson as quarterback? Well, I think it's a really interesting thing because he sort of had his pick of where to go mm-hmm. and presumably some things such as the money the Browns offered him and you know, a pretty talented roster lured him to a place like Cleveland over a place like Atlanta or New Orleans. But the AFC as a whole is extraordinarily stacked. And now he walks into a division for God knows how long that will have both Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson. Yep. And so it's not like the, these are easy days for the Browns in terms of who they have to face. You have to face those guys four times a year. I'm never betting against Mike Tomlin, no matter even if Mitchell Trubisky is his quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's possible to see the Browns going pretty much either way, especially given the fact that we know Deshaun Watson's really good. We also know that he went four and twelve the last time he was on the field for the Texans. Yep. So it's not like he's one of those foolproof cheat code Patrick Mahomes guys that you can slot in and say, all right, double digit wins. What seat are they going to be in the playoffs? He's not quite at that level, not at that tier, or he hasn't shown to be. So. There is some risk here for Cleveland in terms of how much it paid for him, knowing that there's a chance he's suspended for a good chunk of the season. And if you're in that sort of dogfight and you're missing him for, say, eight games, then is it a playoff team this year? I don't know. He is Andrew Beaton, NFL reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We did not cause him to miss dinner this time. Andrew, thank you for joining Take Line. Thank you. Got to come over for dinner sometime. On Thursday, Leah Thomas, uh, who is trans, won the NCAA championship in the 500-meter freestyle swimming event. Uh, the victory was was marred and continues to be marred by the debate around her uh, competition and her ability to compete in these events. Here to discuss what Thomas's victory means for the sport and the future of trans athletes in sports is Katie Barnes, award-winning journalist for ESPN. Katie, uh, welcome to Take Line. Thanks for having me, Jason. Tell us about what essentially are the objections to uh, Leah's competing in these events? You know, the biggest thing is that Leah, unfortunately, sort of stepped into a bit of a perfect storm. 
um, where we're having an ongoing national debate about transgender people, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And a lot of yes. that debate is focused in sports and particularly around transgender women competing in women's sports. And so for Leah Thomas, you know, the core of much of the criticism that she receives is rooted in the fact that prior to swimming on the women's team at the University of Pennsylvania, she spent uh, three seasons on the University of Pennsylvania men's team, um, though it is worth noting that one of those seasons she had under, she had begun hormone therapy. So the fact that she was already competing on a relatively elite level, meaning Division One athletics, um, on the men's side and then transitioned to compete on the women's side and transitioned after going through a testosterone-driven puberty. And so all of those things together have you know, really created a controversy around, you know, the science when it comes to transgender inclusion in women's sports um, and, you know, what is fair, what is unfair, um, and whether or not she should be allowed to compete. Although it is worth noting that she did satisfy all the rules and policies put in front of her. Um, and also, you know, she came in uh, fifth in the 800 and last in the 100. It's not like Leah was out here dominating the field in every single uh, race she competed in. It's very interesting to me that the way this conversation is often framed is like people are like they profess to be fine with uh, trans athletes competing, but they clearly are not fine with them winning. Do you think that that is the case here? Oh, there's no question about the fact that when it comes to how we talk about transgender athletes, you know, the ones that we focus on, the names that we know are all of those who win. Right. There are plenty of athletes that have competed, for example, at the high school level, whose names we will never know. But instead, you know, we've heard of the runners in Connecticut, Andrea Yearwood and, T- yeah. and Terry Miller, who won state championships um, and they are transgender girls, right? And that same principle applies to Leah Thomas. Um, and I think you can point to the fact that, you know, when we first learned about Leah Thomas, it was because she put up you know, really good times in the 200 and the 500 free at the Zippy Invitational all the way back in December. And when that happened, there was a lot of fervor around the idea that, oh my God, if she's swimming this fast in December and is within 10 seconds of Ledecky and two seconds of Missy Franklin, she could beat those records. And so what was interesting at the NCAA tournament was to actually see a lot of those questions be answered in terms of what does it look like when Leah Thomas would swim on an elite level competing for national championships. And the reality is she wasn't the most impressive swimmer in the pool, actually. Mm. That went to Kate Douglas from UVA. So, uh, You talked about uh, the uh, requirements that, that Leah needed to fulfill in order to compete. Could you tell the audience what, what those what those were. Yeah, I think there's a misconception around transgender women and women's sports in particular, where it's like this idea that, you know, you could just decide to be a woman one day and yeah, then right. compete immediately. Just, right, right. So, a very simple decision. And why didn't you make it sooner? You exactly. should have made the, right. Why didn't you do this uh, earlier instead of like, uh, you know, pussyfooting around and like dragging your feet? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It's not like it's a hard internal question or anything. <laughs> right. So, you know, I think, like, but there is that fear that this boundary, if we blur this boundary between, you know, sexes and between genders, then that also means that it's going to be very permeable. People are going to be able to move back and forth with ease. And that's not actually the way that the policies have been developed. And so for Leah Thomas, for her to compete in the women's category at the beginning of the season, what she needed, the policy at the NCAA was essentially that you had to undergo 12 months of testosterone suppression. And it was a policy that was enacted in 2011. It was old policy, but had been governing, you know, NCAA sports for a decade. Um, but then in January, the NCAA came out and said, actually, we are going to kick our policy to the national governing bodies of each individual sport. So we're going to have a sport-by-sport policy approach, and it's effective immediately and we don't exactly know how what this is going to mean. <laughs> and so <laughs> then everybody was like, well, what's USA Swimming's policy? What, like, because that is the governing body for swimming. And USA Swimming updated their policy and came out and said for elite swimmers, and the way that they categorized that is if you are a USA Swimming member, if you are swimming at a designated elite event, which the NCAA cha- championships is not one, or if you want to be eligible for American records, which starts at the ages of 13 to 14, mm-hmm. you have to undergo 36 consecutive months of testosterone suppression 
and be under a threshold of five nanomoles per liter, which that's just your level of free-floating testosterone. For mm-hmm. context, previous levels um, at the international standard have been 10 nanomoles per liter. Um, and, uh, you know, a typical person assigned female at birth, you know, is under five nanomoles per liter. Most are under three nanomoles per liter, just for context. And so um, that was the policy. But then the NCAA said, you know what? We're also not going to accept that in full. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, for Leah to be eligible to swim at championship, she needed to be compliant with the old NCAA standard, which is 12 months of testosterone suppression, mm-hmm. and submit a one-time testosterone serum level of under 10 nanomoles per liter within four weeks of competition. Uh, I can't help but thinking as, as you uh, reel off the the number of things that Leah needed to uh, comport with in order to successfully compete that just the conversation around this, I would imagine if I was struggling with my identity, larger issues uh, after that about what I would want to do with my life after transitioning, that even this kind of, uh, you know, seemingly removed kind of like data driven almost like medical conversation would be something that would dissuade people as a kind of like soft barrier to even thinking about getting involved in college athletics if they were transitioning yeah i mean i think it you know anytime we have policy of course there are barriers i don't necessarily think that when it comes to um you know, when it comes to elite competition that, you know, barriers are bad. I think there's an right. ongoing discussion around what what policy is appropriate at what level of competition. So, for example, the NCAA has this policy that applies to all divisions of its sports. Well, for Division One, that makes sense. Does it make the same amount of sense for Division Three? I think that's an open question and people are asking those questions around policy. Um, you know, what's appropriate for the NCAA Division One may not be appropriate for high school and, and what's appropriate for high school may not be appropriate for elementary school. And certainly what's appropriate for elementary school isn't going to be appropriate for Olympics. But I think what's happening across the country is we're seeing the conflation of those discussions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's possible to have a very serious, nuanced discussion and really dig into all of the different delineations between what people believe but one, that's not happening on Twitter, obviously. <laughs> and two, really? I know, right? Surprise. <laughs> Twitter is not the forum for nuance, you know. But it's not really happening around this issue in a public sense. And in Atlanta, you could see that yeah. uh, where you had protesters who had one very specific opinion. And then anytime there were, anytime the students and the swimmers were sharing, the student athletes, like when they were sharing their perspective, it was, it was different. It was a little bit more nuanced. It was, you know, I have empathy for Leah and who she is as a person, and I'm trying to focus on my race. Yeah. And even for folks who perhaps weren't as supportive of Leah swimming um, in the women's category, you know, they would painstakingly say, well, it's not about, you know, transgender people. Um, whether or not that holds true, I think is also an open discussion. But all of these issues and nuances are being conflated into the same thing. And that makes it really hard to have a discussion culturally about something that is so complex as this is. You mentioned the protesters. What was, what was the atmosphere like there in the gym? You know, Thursday, which was the first um, day that Leah swam, it was really tense. Uh, you could feel the anxiety. Um, it was Leah's best event, uh, the 500. She was favored to win. Um, and there were protesters outside from two different organizations, one Save Women Sports, the other was the college chapter of Concerned Women for America. They were outside with their megaphones and their bullhorns, and they held a press conference. Barbara Ehart, who is a state representative from Idaho, flew in for that. Um, she wrote the, she wrote HB 500, which was the first bill uh, to be enacted into law that restricted transgender athlete participation in the country. Um, so she was there. And then there was a small group of counter-protesters that were Georgia Tech students, actually. And they kind of rallied the troops, as it were, and came out um, and stood apart. And there were confrontations between the two sides. Um, there's video evidence of, um, you know, some of the uh, Save Women Sports folks interacting with the Georgia Tech students. 
Um, I personally witnessed one member of that protest go over across uh, the street and like have a really combative uh, discussion argument, I suppose is the best way of putting it. Um, And so it was not particularly friendly, certainly Mm. on the first day. And as the week went on, though, inside the pool, you know, everybody just kind of had a collective sigh of relief and it mostly felt like a swim meet. It was exciting. Um, You know, it was noticeable that Leah didn't receive as many cheers as other people did. Um, That was definitely true. There were a couple of instances where there were boos that were audible. One parent, or maybe not parent, but one person in the crowd yelled cheater before one of her prelim heats. Mm. Um, So it was not a particularly welcoming environment uh, per se, uh, but, you know, it also wasn't, it wasn't as hostile as I thought it could have been either. Um, you mentioned the uh, the special interest uh, protesting group, Save Women Sports, um, uh, Concerned Women for America. You know, I, I think that the natural kind of uh, inference from the titles of those groups would be uh, women's sports are under siege now by, you know, waves of trans athletes that might come and distort the sport. How many trans athletes are there in NCAA sports? Well, that's hard to answer. I will say that in Division I women's sports, Leah Thomas is the only known transgender woman who's competing. And her career just ended. Right. Out of? Thousands. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so would it be fair to say that like this particular issue – and not just within sports, because clearly I think this is uh, – this dynamic is taking place in the, in the broader conversation around the, uh, the relationship this country has with, uh, with trans people. Um, uh, clearly this is – this issue is being magnified in terms of the actual impact on the sport, in terms of like the fairness for other athletes if you want to – uh, frame it the way that uh, some of these protest groups would frame it. Like this is, as you just said, the one known trans athlete in this sport has just exited the sport. So we're done, right? We're good. Are we good? Well, no, I mean, I think people who are opposed to transgender women competing in women's sports would argue that, okay, it was one athlete, but look at, what one athlete was able to achieve. Look at how many spots and opportunities she took away from cisgender women. That is the argument that would be made. I do think it's fair to say that when it comes to transgender women and girls who win, they receive disproportionate coverage, which I think in turn makes it seem like a bigger issue than it is. Um, in terms of just the numbers of transgender women and girls that are participating in sports. Like we know that those numbers are minuscule, even if, you know, we took the most generous statistics and interpreted them at the high school level, there would be like, you know, if you do the math, it's possible statistically that there would be like 35,000 transgender athletes. There are not 35,000 transgender athletes, but for argument's sake, let's say that that is the number that exists. Well, there are 8 million high schoolers that can participate in sports. (laughs) So when you do that math, that's 0.44%. And so, you know, and and likely it's actually probably a fraction of that percentage. Um, Because for so many reasons, it's hard for transgender kids to start playing sports. Once you become a high achieving athlete and realize that you are trans, it is hard to continue to compete. You have to make decisions about your career. And I think the other side of that coin is Isaac Hennig, who's a Yale swimmer. He's a transgender man. He has continued to participate in the women's category uh, because he has not started hormone therapy. That's how he's able to remain eligible. And he has to make a decision between how he's going to compete and you know what he's what his career is going to look like moving forward um as you know a guy in women's swimming yeah. <laughs> and so you know trans athletes are constantly confronted with these questions never mind the fact that you know we're still talking about trans men and trans women when we have an increasingly large uh, number of people that are identifying in gender expansive ways and fluid ways mm-hmm. 
Like what does a sporting apparatus that's built on a binary that is committed to having hard lines between those binary categories, what does that look like when not everybody fits that? You know, that is continuing, I think, to pose, you know, just fundamental cultural questions to us as a society. I and mean, that's really what we're grappling with. I think one of the reasons why sports has become such a vehicle for this conversation is because of its relationship to gender. It preys on our fundamental cultural beliefs around gender. Um, and that I think is uh, particularly confounding for the general populace as you know, yeah. this debate rages on. Uh, Leah's been pretty taciturn and She's spoken about the, the impact of the attention on her on her mental health and um, how she tries to essentially block things out. But she hasn't spoken that much about uh, uh, about her her feelings and her thoughts uh, regarding the uh, the events. Uh, any idea where her path takes her from here? You know, she has said that she would like to continue swimming. Um, you know, she would like to swim in the 2024 Olympic trials. Uh, whether or not that happens, we'll see. Um, policy is a moving target right now, and not just at the collegiate level, um, also at the international level. Um, there's an expectation that FINA, the International Federation for Swimming, will be releasing some sort of a policy uh, within the coming months because the International Olympic Committee has asked them to do so, um, asked all of the international federations to develop their own policies. So, what that's going to look like, I think, is you know, a really, is really interesting. Uh, for the better part of a decade, you know, the policies for transgender athletes and eligibility in both the NCAA and Olympic level competition have been sort of settled, like we knew what those were, and that's no longer the case. And they're going to vary by sport. Um, and so, what that means for Leah um, will be interesting. But you know, moving forward, I, you know, I wonder if we will hear from her. Uh, she hasn't said very much other than a couple of interviews in the last few months. And now that everything is over, uh, maybe we will hear from her, but I don't know. Mm. It'll be interesting for sure. We've been talking with Katie Barnes, award-winning reporter for ESPN. Uh, thanks for joining TakeLine. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Discovery Plus's legacy in the shadow of greatness puts you in the shoes of athletes who are the children of famous athletes. And one of those is Evan Holyfield, a light middleweight with a record of 8-0 with six knockouts. He is the son of Evander Holyfield, who, of course, became a household name in the 90s. Uh, for his uh, many fights, uh, including beating Mike Tyson in 1996. Evan, thanks for coming on. In the Shadow of Greatness has really given people a chance to kind of like understand uh, what it's like to begin the progress of an athletic career coming from a person who is, has a lineage uh, at Elite Athletics. What made this project uh, right for you? Well, firstly, um, it kind of came down the pipeline with Down Divine um, for my brother. And uh, he was asking me if I wanted to be a part of it. And, um, of course, I, I just jumped on the opportunity because, you know, it's my closest brother, Elijah. And I know he wouldn't steer me into anything, into anything wrong. And, um, you know, why not? Why not just help out? So that's pretty much what it was for me. And it's kind of just changed over time. Uh, do you remember when when did you get serious about about fighting, about boxing? Your father says uh, your father, Vander Holyfield says he got you into the fight game at about eight. Um, but when did you really start thinking seriously about pursuing it in a real way? Um, I got to say, like, probably towards, like, eighth grade, ninth grade. Because um, when I had my first fight at eight, my mom took me out and she made me play every other sport. So that's like, <laughs> um, just, she was just hoping I should have another passion. So, you know, I did football, track, wrestling, swimming, um, gymnastics. Like Taekwondo, and I played like literally every single sport um, I possibly could play. But at the end of the day, you know, it was towards like eighth, ninth grade. You know, like for some reason during like 2012, there was a lot of like mm -hmm. um, 
young prodigies, child prodigies coming up, you know? So I remember seeing that a lot on YouTube and, you know, my brother was getting ready. Um, You know, my brother's my age, so, you know, he's going to ninth yeah. grade too. So I remember college football was a big thing for him too. So uh, it really wasn't about um what was happening in the ninth grade. It was about what was going to happen in the next like four years. That's the way he was thinking. So like, you know, I seen I seen him like you know starting to invest all his time into that. So you know, I kind of like wanted to find something for myself. You know, really wanted to find something to really go in and really invest my time. And mm. um, I had really came um I had really came into it. And I was like, I'm gonna do a boxing. You know what I mean? Like I always had been interested in boxing at the time. HBO boxing was still a big thing, and they had fighters like Canelo, Pacquiao, yeah, you know, Kovalev. So you know. Those are the fighters I was watching, you know, and it really kind of inspired me to, um, you know, really want to box. But one other boxer really made me, um, you know, really go all in because um, I don't understand what boxing Boxing is not like, you know, one of those sports like, you know, you just kind of could just hop in, you know, and right. you maybe able to do good, you know, like basketball, yeah. you know, basketball, you know, you see kids go outside and shoot the basket, you know, you got a good shot. You can play on a basketball team most likely, you know what I mean? You can learn on the job. But boxing is one of those things like, there's kids that they be boxing and they've been boxing since like eight years old. You know what I mean? So by the time they come to like the age of like 13, 14, 15, it really doesn't even matter who they're boxing with. These kids can beat up grown men because, you yeah. know, at the end of the day, it don't matter how strong you are. It's about the skills, it's the skills that you learn that sets you apart. But um, I had watched a video on this boxer named Earl Spence and um, he's a world champion now. He was 2012 Olympian and stuff like that. And he was, inside his video, it was highlighted that he had started boxing at the age of 15 years old. Wow. And when I heard that, I said, now, at the time, I was like 13. I was like 12 or 13. And so I was like, oh, yeah. Hey, he made it. He made it all the way to the Olympics. So I still have a chance. You know what I mean? I'm not too old. You know, there's, there's a gap. There's, the gap's not too big to, um, you know, to cover. You know what I mean? So um, I went downstairs and um, I had told my mom first that I just wanted to do boxing. Because, you know, Earl Spence was talking about he quitted football and all he did was boxing. So I was like, you know, hey, this is the recipe. You know, the, the common thread between everybody who's, um, you know, successful in, in, in athletics is, you know, they're pretty much just all zoned in and focused on, you know, their one sport. Even I was mm -hmm. seeing the first time with my brother Elijah, he had quit boxing to just go to, um, to, to, to just play football. So, you know, I'm seeing the first time. And even my dad, I heard my dad say a couple of stories about it. So I was like, yes, this is the way, this is the route to go. You know, I'm going to put all my marbles in and I'm going to see where it takes me. You know what I mean? And the first couple of years when I first started boxing, you know, like at the age of like 12, 13, uh, it was kind of like discouraging. You know what I mean? I'm um, just going to the gym every day. In, what's, in what way? Um, Like I could say it was encouraging by the people who I had around me. Mm. Um, I say that because I feel like the people around you really kind of do make or break you. You know what I mean? Literally, if you have, like, friends around you and they're, like, um, real complacent or real easy to quit, you know, you'll find yourself doing the same thing. You know what I mean? And I felt like um, at the time, I had a lot of people around me who were, you know, older than me, you know, especially at the boxing gym. You know, it's not just, yeah. like, one, one specific age group. You know, it's not like I'm just around a whole bunch of high schools. I'm around a lot of grown men. Um, people from different backgrounds, because when I started boxing, I started boxing in Bankhead. And, um, and if you don't know, and you're from Atlanta, you know, Bankhead's the hood. It's like where T.I. is from and stuff like that. So, like, it was really adjustments, you know, getting to know them, too, because, you know, they looked at me as, like, I was, so, you know, a snobby rich kid or whatever. And, you know, they that's what they, you know, assumed to me until they got to know me and stuff like that. So, like, literally, I would go to the gym every single day. And if it wasn't for these people around me that were encouraging me to keep to keep me going, I was getting um I was getting beat up every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. I go to practice. You know, I do the drills. Hey, the drills was the fun part. You know what I mean? Hey, right. Running, yeah. Hey, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. hard work. <laughs> yeah. So they talk about running and stuff. Hey, they say like doing all that running and stuff was like you know I mean the hard part for boxes. Hey, that was that was the fun part for me because I could do all that well. I could run. I'm really good in shape. I could do the drills, but it was like when it came down to sparring, you know, those kids were getting down, you know, were getting the better piece of me, you know? And, um, yeah. And I bet if like, if I'm a sparring partner at the gym and I get a chance to show the son of a famous, uh, world champion, like I want to make my name for myself. I, I, I would imagine dudes were going after you. 
Yeah, you know, and they was going after me every day because it wasn't like um, my mom was bringing me into practice. My dad, my dad started bringing me into practice for like you know the first couple months of me boxing, you know, so I, until I started like you know getting more comfortable, you know, with atmosphere of a boxing gym, you know, and stuff and stuff like that. So my dad was taking me. So you know, these people would be boxing me and sparring me, and you know, hey, they're always coming their hardest. But you know, this is like literally, uh, my dad's like a hometown hero for um, people in Atlanta. So yeah. like. These are um for some of the kids or some of the people who are on boxing. These are this is like literally a person who they're looking up, who they've been looking up to. So they're not gonna look bad in front of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but at the, at that same time, people taking it easy on you is not gonna make you any better. So you know, at the end of the day, it, it always made it felt that it wouldn't make me the person who I am today because um you know it really taught me how to persevere and you know it really just pushed you to things and um. It's, you got to look at the picture at the bigger picture sometimes because yeah. you know if you just focus on the small things of what was going on every day like you know I was doing good at everything except sometimes it's fine you know somebody get up somebody get off on me you know and the boys would get off on me but I come back the next day and what really kept me going was I may land like an extra punch or something like that a two extra punches or you know what I mean I may I may have caught him lacking for like you know a couple seconds or something like that and I'd be like oh, yeah, you know, I'm getting better. You know, if I could just build on top of that, I can, you know, clearly I'm going somewhere. And I just kept doing that. In the series, you talk a lot about um, how you saw uh, your dad more as a dad and less as a boxer. Like, that's the way you, of course, uh, uh, interact with him as as you, as your dad. But, of course, he was <laughs> the defending heavyweight champion of, uh, at the time when you were born. What do you remember about his career from when you were growing up? Man, when I was growing up, I felt like when, uh, when you're young, you just don't be paying attention to some things, you know? Yeah. So like um I know I remember I used to go to some of his camps, some of his training camps, and um, you know, I used to regret well to this day, I kind of regret not paying attention as much as I should have, you know what I mean? Cause you know, I'd be more so um consumed with what was going on around me with my brothers and sisters. But um as I got older and stuff, um, you know, I definitely started watching his fights and stuff. And um when I was younger, he was just more so just a dad to me, you know. Just um, somebody who I used to love on and, and only looked at us as a, as a parent. I was completely oblivious of all the achievements and all that he has done and stuff like that. But it really wasn't until I wanted to become a great boxer myself. Um, it's when I had to really soak in all that what he's actually done. And, um, you know, um, if anybody wants to be great, you got to, you know, look up to somebody. And honestly, he was the first person to. You're 8-0 and right now with, with six knockouts. Uh, I think your dad only had 29 knockouts for his entire career over almost 60 fights. Um, if you were to scout yourself, what is, you know, what, what, what's your style? What's your style of fighting? Um, I don't know. That'd be, I feel like that'd be pretty hard. Cause you know, sometimes it's actually kind of funny cause you know, when you think of um, people, um, let's say you want to get, you want, you want to try a, this girl whatever you always look at your instagram profile to see what other um what yeah. other people are <laughs> yeah. seeing type deal yeah. so you know it's kind of weird you um boxers do the same thing in such a way uh, i guess some boxers will look up themselves to see what what footage of themselves will pop up you know what i mean to see um what all footage is available on themselves you know so i do that a couple times and i'll be trying to scout myself and um i feel like from a personal perspective i was going to scout myself i say like you know it's more so of a blending part of like I can box and I can fight, but I feel like um the more I use my feet, um, this is what really sets me apart from um, most of these boxers out here because um I feel like I can um I have the ability to um create more um you know on the go than you know most people. But I can um I can I can really shape and shift to um what I need to do, but I feel like my feet is really what set me apart. Goals for twenty twenty two. How often do you think you want to fight? Um, and what route do you want to take as you as you climb the mountain? My goal for 2022 is, you know, of course, everybody wants to stay undefeated. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's number one. And but number two is, you know, just having an active, um, having an active year. And um, I want to get some type of accolade or recognition for, you know, some of the fights that I've done, you know, like on the aim for prospect of the year or something like that. So um, I know that doesn't come easy. And it's going to come by staying undefeated. And, um, you know, it's just 
just keeping the fights rattling right off um, this year, you know. Hopefully, um, I get to the end of the year and I can look back and um, and look at my box record and tell and say, you know, I really made a big leap this year. He is Evan Holyfield, a undefeated light middleweight. Uh, the show is Legacy in the Shadow of Greatness, and you can watch it on Discovery Plus. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which airs every Friday. Check it out. Bye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah Dubalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. <laughs>